When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. September 30th marked the final day of the third quarter. And the end of the quarter also marked a cash crunch in an important short-term lending market. This is where financial players go to trade some of their assets in exchange for cash in order to keep up with regular business. Think of hedge funds trying to fund another trade. It seemed almost out of nowhere that there wasn't enough cash swirling around the system to keep up with demand. Hello and welcome to Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On this episode, we're looking at the short-term lending market, the repo market, and why in the past two weeks, it's come up short on cash. All right. Uh, Joe. Hello. Hi. Um, Joe, what are you doing? <laughs> Joe Renison covers markets for the FT, and I asked him to explain what the repo market is exactly. The repo market, other than being fabulously exciting, is where banks and investors uh, go to source short-term financing. And, and how do they do it? Uh, and they do that by borrowing cash for very short periods, often just overnight, Uh, in exchange for treasuries or other high-quality collateral, mortgage bonds, for example. So uh, cash is lent in exchange for the treasury, and then at the end of the period agreed, 24 hours, one week, two weeks, uh, that treasury is repurchased uh, by the person you did the trade with, and the cash flows back. With a a little bit of a a small fee, usually somewhere between 2.5% or so. Attached to it. Uh, Yeah, at the moment, that's roughly where it is. That's why it's called a repurchase agreement, because you are repurchasing the collateral that you give in exchange for that cash. And to use Joe's words, the repurchase or repo market is a crucial piece of the financial system. It's where these market participants, such as hedge funds or real estate investment trusts, are able to get the cash they need to get on with the rest of business for the coming day. These trades take place early in the morning for that reason. So, Joe, uh, can you take us back a couple weeks, Monday morning, mid-September? How did things look in the repo market? Repo traders, the people that interact in this market, came in on Monday the 16th of September reasonably calm. They had some expectation that, you know, things could get a little interesting, uh, primarily because uh, it was coming off the back of uh, corporate tax payments being made, and that pulls cash out of the market and is given to the US Treasury. And on top of that, uh, there were some Treasury settlements coming through that day. And what that means is uh, basically, you know, Treasuries are sold at an auction, and then they settle or are paid for uh, a few weeks later. And so the settlements are where people needed to pay for these Treasuries that they bought uh, was coming on that Monday. And so again, cash coming out of the market being handed to the US Treasury. And typically, you know, this is a, an annual event, and it typically passes without mention. But 
You mean corporate tax day, September the 15th? Corporate tax day, treasury settlements, all of these things typically pass without mention. But uh, because there had been a slow kind of creep of funding pressure building over, frankly, the past 12 months, what you had kind of coming in to this relatively uh, sanguine uh, or at least expected to be sanguine event was actually a much tighter, constrained financial system than I think most people realized. We're going to get back to where some of this pressure was coming from in a second. But first, Joe, what happened in trading that day? In the opening 5, 10, 15 minutes, repo rates start to climb. Now, Monday, this was a little bit more gradual. And they eventually reach a peak of around sort of 6%. Uh, there were some people who suggested it got as high as 8% uh, on Monday over the course of the day. And that was unexpected. What were people thinking? Um, yeah, that's, that's a stressed market. That means there was a much higher demand for cash than there was supply. And so by the end of, the, end of Monday, people are jittery. People are nervous. Uh, and coming in on Tuesday... Uh, you know, the expectations were already that markets could go a little bit haywire. You know, a number of people in the market had hoped that the Federal Reserve Bank of New York would have already uh, made an announcement to try and calm those concerns down. They didn't. The New York Fed, among other things, is the arm of the U.S. Central Bank that oversees financial markets. And markets opened uh, at 7 a.m. on Tuesday and very quickly uh, started to rise. So within the first sort of 15 minutes, uh, you're going from you know, maybe 3% straight up to uh, around 10% um, very, very quickly. Uh, and you know, when rates are moving that quickly, the market kind of shuts down because it's very hard to put through any trades when the rate is moving around so much. You know, it was after that very volatile, very severe episode uh, that the uh, New York Fed did make an announcement that they would step in and they would uh, provide cash to the market. So effectively, they became one of the lenders. They did the job that typically would be done by, say, banks. Like a commercial bank that might be able to put up some cash in exchange for... Yeah, exactly. In exchange for treasuries, they put up cash. And how much are we talking about? How much did the Fed put in? Uh, So in that first uh, repo operation that the Fed did, uh, they injected around $53 billion dollars. Uh, into the market. And that helped to soothe repo rates. It helped to soothe sort of investor concerns. It it brought the repo rate down a little. Exactly. And then by 4pm on that same day, the New York Fed had announced that it would do the same thing again the next day. And that's important because it means that as traders are sitting down at their desk, uh, you know, at 6.55 the next day, They know that when 7 a.m. hits, when the market opens, if the banks aren't lending, if they can't get cash elsewhere, then there should be cash coming through uh, from the New York Fed. And they're going to continue to do it until October 11th, you know, still lending money for 24 hours in exchange for treasuries. Um, This is not them giving banks money. Uh, This is not a cumulative operation. You know, this should be measured in terms of the overnight uh, amount of money being injected into markets um, because they get it back the next day uh, and then they lend it out again. And they're earning an interest rate. The New York Fed is earning an interest rate just like any other market participant would. Uh, and they have collateral just like any other market participant would. So this this helped. 
afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Yeah, the the, the curious thing uh, about this whole week is it also coincided uh, with the uh, FOMC meeting. So when the Fed meets to discuss interest rates, to discuss monetary policy, and a number of people were expecting, you know, maybe the sort of Federal Reserve to take swift, more permanent action at that meeting. It did not, but it certainly discussed this issue. Uh, and what they did do is they did lower interest rates. That was always on the docket and always expected. Today, we decided to lower interest rates. And so interest rates came down a little bit anyway, and that affects other short-term money markets. It brings interest rates down a little bit. And so uh, repo rates eventually started to settle down towards the end of the week um, to around sort of 2 2.5% 2 again. And that's kind of where they've hovered, where they've stayed, uh, you know, up until today. By today, Joe's talking about Monday, September 30th. That's when he and I spoke. Now, the reason today is so important is that it's the end of the third quarter. And unlike September 17th, uh, September 30th, the end of the quarter, is expected to be a stressed period uh, for the repo market. Quarter ends, year ends, typically you see repo rates rise. Uh, And the reason that happens is because banks who have uh, to report the size of their balance sheet, specific numbers to regulators, uh, to have the, uh, their capital needs assessed and set for the next quarter. Um, that comes a snapshot in time at the end of the quarter, um, so September 30th. And that means that they become very reluctant uh, to lend out cash, to even borrow cash, to do anything that might increase the size of its balance sheet because it's going to have capital uh, consequences for them. Um, And so the market becomes much more constrained. And having had this big jolt, this ruction in the market on September 17th, people were particularly concerned kind of coming into this quarter. So what else did the Fed do to ease some of this pressure? So the the Fed, uh, having been criticised for being perhaps a little bit flat-footed, Uh, initially uh, by not um, making any announcement on that initial Monday where repo rates started to rise and waiting till Tuesday um, and having that big spike up to 10%, uh, the New York Fed became a little bit more preemptive of quarter end. And what they decided to do was uh, two-week repo operations. So what this means is effectively it's a two-week loan collateralized against treasuries. Um, And they started doing this. They announced it on Friday, September 20th. And it began Tuesday, September 24th. Um, And they conducted two further uh, operations like this on the 26th and the 27th. So it was Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. All the while still doing the overnight operation alongside it, still lending money for that 24-hour period alongside it to keep, you know, pressure out of the... Uh, repo market intraday, but then these two-week operations, which were cash being lent over the end of the quarter, so people could be funded, people could have the money they needed uh, over that quarter end. And it appears to have worked. It appears to have kept things relatively contained. Yes, repo rates did rise a little bit today, but it was uh, nowhere near the turmoil that was seen um, you know, at the middle of the month. And everything seems to have passed by reasonably uneventfully. So, Joe, you've told us, you've sort of walked us through the story of what happened in repo markets. 
and how the Fed intervened to ease some of the pressure. But how did that pressure build in the first place? You know, over the past 12 months, like I was saying, you've had the Fed unwinding its balance sheet. That reduces reserve balances. That reduces cash. As an aside, the Fed bought up treasuries after the crisis as a way of putting money into the financial system to make sure there was enough. It went from having a balance sheet of about a trillion dollars of assets pre-crisis to a peak of about four and a half trillion. And recently, it's been unwinding that balance sheet, which is to say reducing the number of those treasury assets. You've had uh, other structural forces that have left banks to hold more treasuries. And so they would have paid for those probably out of their reserves. Um, and so reserve balances have come down a little bit. Uh, and their, their balance sheets are growing with those, those additional treasuries that they're holding. And since the financial crisis, large banks have been required to meet what's called a liquidity coverage ratio, meaning they have to have a certain amount of assets, very liquid assets like cash or treasuries, on hand, stuff that can be sold to keep their operations running in the event of another kind of crisis. And holding those treasuries means they go on the bank's balance sheet. And then, uh, kind of coming into September, you even have uh, you know, the constraint of the debt ceiling no longer applying to the U.S. Treasury. So they start building up their cash position. So you have all these pressures pushing reserves lower. And this is a gradual thing. It's very, very slow moving, uh, slowly kind of constraining the repo market over time. And when you start to see some funding pressure, when you start to see a little, traders become uh, tense, jittery, and rates spike quite quickly. Um, And that's what happened. It kind of unraveled very fast. It also came back in line fairly quickly, as we saw when the New York Fed came, came in, when they stepped in, when they provided that kind of backstop of money to the market, then things calmed down and it was okay. But I'm not quite sure, Joe, that I understand why this was such a surprise. Corporate tax day, treasury settlements, even the unwinding of the Fed stimulus These were not surprise dates. I mean, someone must have been monitoring the convergence of all of these dates. Well, again, again, some people did. Some people had signaled that they expected uh, money markets to become more pressured. But it's we're in a period of unprecedented uh, monetary policy. You know, everyone knew there would be a point where reserves would become constrained. Everyone knew requirements of reserves were much higher now than they were pre-crisis. But actually knowing exactly where that is, is a very difficult thing. And, you know, by uh, the surveys that were conducted by the New York Fed, uh, by certain analyst estimates, not all, um, you know, we were still a long way off where that sort of uh, point was that we should become constrained. The potential crunch. Exactly. And what this seems to have elucidated or what this seems to have brought to light is Maybe we were a little closer than we thought. <laughs> or at least, you know, there, there are some other slightly more nuanced reasons for it, that maybe there are enough reserves, but they're not getting into the hands of the people that need them. But fundamentally, it's the same issue. It's that, you know, uh, cash is now scarce for those that need cash. Mm-hmm. And so then you get to the question of, well, what do you do about that? Uh, and where do you go from here? And that's kind of what people are grappling with now. Thank you. 
There's been a lot of talk about whether the Fed reacted quickly enough and whether it is equipped to keep these markets moving properly, keep those air pockets from sticking for too long. But I'm curious about the perspective of the other players in repo markets, the big banks, the other guys trying to get cash. Well, so so this is the the, the, the interesting thing is it's not really the big banks. The, the big banks were fine. They, they had all the cash they need. The people that then get squeezed are smaller dealers. And those smaller dealers, again, they're not household names, would often go to the bigger banks to get cash. And so when those bigger banks don't lend cash, the smaller dealers don't get cash. And then the hedge funds and the real estate investment trusts don't get the cash they need. Now, all of these places are cognizant that this can happen. So they have other funding sources. They have bilateral relationships with certain institutions where they can get cash quickly. You know, it's not all of their funding, but it doesn't help when these things happen. The biggest banks, you know, precisely because they didn't lend out their cash, they had enough. Um, uh, and that's that's kind of the job of a treasurer uh, at these big banks. Their, their job is to manage um, the sort of financial position of the bank, uh, make sure it has enough financing to go about its daily tasks. And part of that now includes making an assessment um, of all of the regulation that they are under internationally uh, to make sure that they don't fall below the thresholds that are set for them um, on the amount of money they need for you know, the potential of a dire circumstance kind of being thrust upon them. Joe said something earlier about how we're in unprecedented monetary policy territory, especially when it comes to just how much the end and the unwinding of the Fed's bond buying program is going to affect the financial system. So I asked our own Jillian Tett what to make of this. Jillian was closely covering the markets during the crisis and the post-crisis period. One of the big questions going forward is, just to take the view from 10,000 feet, um, can the Fed continue to manage the aftermath or the legacy of these extraordinary monetary policy experiments we've seen over the last decade? Several years ago, I sat down with former Fed officials who were talking about what had happened with this extraordinary quantitative easing program that had essentially quadrupled the Fed's balance sheet. And I, we were saying, gosh, it's going to be extremely hard for anyone in charge of the Fed to reverse this um, you know, eye-poppingly large experiment without creating new dramas. And the Fed governor said to me, listen, you have to imagine the Fed as being like a pilot who's trying to land a plane. And what they're doing is having increased the balance sheet dramatically. They're going to simply sit there and let all the bonds that they've bought and put on the balance sheet just expire um, when they come due. And bit by bit, the Fed balance sheet will shrink and the Fed will be like a pilot landing a plane on the glide path, just simply switching off the engines and letting gravity take its course. And it will glide down very gently, very smoothly, and no one will notice. Now, somebody like Tim Geithner, the former New York Fed governor who went on to be secretary of the U.S. Treasury, never quite believed it would be quite as easy as that. And so he used to talk a lot about putting foam on the runway. And that's an image for explaining actually you had to create some safety valves or safety nets, if you like, for the central bank balance sheet as it gradually let the quantitative easing unwind. Recent Fed officials have been less concerned about putting foot on the runway, which is another reason why this recent shock happened. But the question now is that, you know, as we move into a period where the Fed's shrunk the balance sheet, partly reversed QE, but is now thinking about potentially expanding 
of support for the economy going forward. And you've got other central banks elsewhere in the world who are going back into QE. What on earth is going to happen to the Fed's balance sheet now? Um, Will the Fed be able to keep flying that plane smoothly, given the potential for more geopolitical shocks or nasty sudden, sudden weather squalls, if you like, to use a metaphor again? And does anyone actually understand exactly how the financial system is actually operating today? Because all of this dramatic experimentation means that the Fed is a bit like a pilot flying a plane where the altimeter has been reset and the radar is working on a different route and none of the dials are quite acting the same way as before. And so it's pretty hard to fly it smoothly. You can read much more from Joe and Jillian and the rest of the team at FT.com. I've linked to a few of these stories in the show notes for this episode. And get in touch if you've got a follow-up question from this episode, or if there's something you want us to look into in the future. You can email us at BehindTheMoney at FT.com, or I'm on Twitter at Amy P. Keen. That's A-I-M-E-E-P-K-E-A-N-E. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.